Was it when democracy started dying in darkness? Is that was that the point? I think we make that joke every fucking time the Washington Post people must be like, shut the fuck up. Like every time the Washington Post comes up, one of us says that. <laughs> I guess democracy was dying at that point. I think it started dying in 2015 or 16, right? As soon as no, it Orange dying. Man. Yeah, yeah. 2016. That's right. Yeah, because the country chose not to elect the bastion of democracy that is the Clinton campaign. <laughs> Killery. This is where we just become an anti-Clinton conspiracy theorist. Okay. <laughs> well, again, Steve and I were talking about this last night. It's just like, we should do shit like that and just say, oh, wow, bro, that's crazy. <laughs> and then do that for two hours, get increasingly more and more reactionary and less focused on capitalism in our takes. And then suddenly we're talking about Pizzagate, Clinton's climate change actually wasn't real, all that right. kind of shit. And then we're making money. And we're selling prepper buckets and mm-hmm. yeah, that, that, that compound is, that concrete. Is, that, that is the, the, the final turn that all those guys make is start selling <laughs> prepper, prepper food. Yeah. I can't wait. It's going to be even just like even Ben Shapiro, who claims to be some intellectual sells fucking prepper food, just like all the other dickheads. Does he really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Holy shit. Promo code Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Promo code Israel. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't look up because we were, again, Levi, we were talking last night. I think that he fired Candace Owens because of the whole Israel thing, but we weren't sure. And I, I didn't look it up. So she was working for Ben Shapiro on yeah, the Blaze, she for that right? Daily, Daily Wire. Daily Wire. She was the reality TV show host turned political neophyte. God, she's fucking terrible. I mean, they're all terrible, but she's like. Something about her just really fucking grates at me. One of the good and ones, They all right? grate at me. I don't well, know. Yeah, they, I mean, they all do, but something about her, like, just is worse. I don't know why. It's because she's a black woman, Steve. Because <laughs> 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 <just threatened. laughs> <laughs> she's a strong black woman, Steve. <laughs> yeah, that, that, exactly. What did she say about Israel that was beyond the pale? I mean, I think she just wasn't blindly supportive of them. Or she said that they shouldn't kill... I don't know. I, I don't know. I just know. She that, had Norm Finkelstein on her podcast. This is like old. This is like two yeah, or this three is a long time old. ago. Yeah. yeah. Or not oh. the podcast or show. And like, again, I guess critical support for that like thing in isolation because she does really suck otherwise. But like, <laughs> you know, you could tell I watched parts of the interview. You could tell like that what Finkelstein was saying because he's uncompromising. Like we know that um, seemed to be affecting her and it played out that she, I think it put her into conflict with uh Benny Shaps, her boss man. So, <laughs> and there will be no self-hating Jews on the show. <laughs> she Jewish? No, F- Finkelstein is the self-hating uh, Jew in this analysis. Got it. That was Shapiro, isn't he? Wait, I read somewhere that he like talks about how he proudly wears the head covering, but he wears it in a way that it blends in immediately with his hair, so it's almost impossible to tell that he's always wearing a kippah. One of these, like, very Jewish insider baseball things to talk about Jews that talk about how proud they are of being Jewish because they wear things that they then wear in a way that nobody can see them. Right. Not much to say there. I don't know. Well, I mean, I want to go back to our prepper uh, packs because I think we're going to be able to diversify the contents a little bit because we should probably let the listeners know that Levi is moving to Germany. 
imminently. The fatherland. The nation that corrected all of its mistakes and is operating like really in an inspiring way on the global stage right now, <laughs> having internalized the lessons from its past. Yeah, they, they only three days ago through Bloomberg announced that they will be increasing their defense spending to 3.5% of their GDP to match America. So Trump's well, not going to like if, let if Russia don't. invade now because they're yeah, going to, exactly. um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, we're going in the same direction there, right? Yeah. But so did you get like the contents of the loyalty oath to Israel that you're going to have to swear once you arrive on German soil? I mean, I, I got that when I started working for the county here. Uh, I wonder if that transfers over or I have to pay some other asshole to translate it for me to prove that I'm a, a fetile citizen of the United States empire. Mm-hmm. It's exciting stuff. Yeah. I was <laughs> just talking about this yesterday, trying to find the information going to the Latter-day Saints actually to prove uh, some sort of right of return to Germany as a previously persecuted person. Somebody finally asked like, why are you so worried about that? Well, not like I want citizenship because I have some sort of love of Germany, but I would love if they couldn't deport me at any moment for having pro-Palestinian sympathies. Is essentially where I'd be if they found out what I believe in certain areas. At least in the United States, they can't deport me. They can just make my life a living hell. Yeah. Do we need to take that picture down of us down in D.C. off the Instagram? Like, <laughs> seriously, though? <laughs> I think there's worse stuff out there connected to me. No... It'll be fine. I don't think we'll get in much trouble, but it'll always be something that is very much going to hang over us. And that's part of the excitement, right? <laughs> it's like the old David Cross bit, like if you're ever bored, just commit a murder because then for the rest of your life, you'll constantly be thinking about whether or not you'll get caught. <laughs> no time for boredom. Yeah. I don't know. We'll probably come back to that. Where do you guys want to start? I mean, you know, obviously we're joking about loyalty oaths to the Zionist state, um, what's going on in Germany. And we can probably get into more detail on that. But I mean, the joking aside, like Israel is basically in the final stages of trying to fucking depopulate Gaza. Right. I mean, just to be blunt, I know the resistance is fighting on and everything, and it doesn't seem that militarily they can hold anything, but there's I think 1.4 million people in Rafa right now, which is the southernmost point of the Gaza Strip, right, right on the Egyptian border. Yeah. Um, and there's still people in the north. There's two million, 2.2 or 2.1 million people total in Gaza. So there's still people in the north, but like they're starving. You know, there's no access to anything up there. And Israel has said that they've got a deadline um, for people to leave Rafa. I guess to just go you know, sweat in the freaking Sinai desert with no shelter at all. Right. By March 10th. So that's kind of where we're at. The U S just vetoed yet another ceasefire resolution, um, at the UN security council, uh, I think last week or maybe earlier this week, the only veto, of course, obviously. Um, so yeah. Netanyahu laid out his plan for Gaza after the war. Do you see that? Yeah. Uh, isn't it basically depopulation and settlement? Yeah, and it's like they'll be in control of the security there and only Palestinians with no links to hot groups hostile to Israel would be able to run the territory. 
they've already said that every every Palestinian in Gaza is basically responsible for Hamas. So they've already covered their bases at that point, right? Yeah, and I guess the U.S. are they want that Palestinian authority to to govern, but Netanyahu's like, nope. And I know that the PA aren't great, but they're Palestinians, right? No, I mean the PA is awful. Like the yeah. the PA is the PA is basically outside of the unity of uh, resistance, right? And yeah. that extends to the Palestinian people. Like, and I'm saying this not because I know this from like my personal experience. I know this because I was just talking to somebody. There was a speaker last night um, at Pitt. He's a professor at Pitt. I mean, and he talked explicitly about how there's unity around the entire kind of framework of resistance, but it excludes the PA because like they're actually part of the apparatus of subjugating yeah. uprisings in the West Bank. Right. Yeah. But yeah, so of course, like they're a comprador, you know, and I know like there was a point where I think we don't need to like focus on the PA too, too much because there's a lot of other shit to like condemn and fight against, especially for us here. But like the fact that the U S wants to kind of prop them up as like a legitimate governing body should tell us that they're not actually that at least is currently constituted. No, they're, they're a symptom of a larger issue. They aren't what's causing the problem here, which is why they don't really deserve an incredible amount of focus, but they're a collaborationist arm mm-hmm. of the Palestinian state. I, I think my point was just that even with all that that we know, still not good enough for Netanyahu, which should indicate that he just wants to fucking eradicate everyone, right? Yeah, but you didn't see. Uh, actually, this morning... The White House has reversed its policy on West Bank settlement and has said uh, that they will tell Israel to quit it. That's nice. They'll tell. Are them. they going to sanction individuals like they did last time, like a couple months ago? Like, oh, four individuals. Oh, they, they plan on uh, doubling their sanctions to five people. <laughs> yeah. And uh, those five people will be just the most mundane people they can find that already are like pedophiles or something. So they can already be put in prison for something else by Israel and claim it a good thing. Right. No, it, it's disgusting. I was watching, I think, was it John Oliver or something? And, um, you know, they were showing like his interviews with Netanyahu and, and they're like, but in private Netanyahu or Biden's saying that Netanyahu's an asshole. And it's like, great. <laughs> Who fucking gives a shit. And then, uh, I guess on Al Jazeera, they had some guy and they were like, Biden called Netanyahu a fucking, that fucking guy or something. And it's like, ooh, yeah, (laughs) that fucking guy is killing 30,000 people with the bombs I send him. That rascal. (laughs) Yeah, Say what you will about Nixon, but he actually took away the weapons when he was mad at them. Mm -hmm. There's material things that the Biden administration could actually do that would change the course of the actions of the people they claim to not support. I was reading something the other day that I didn't really even know. But even just three years ago, under Joseph Robinette Biden, like when Israel was bombing Gaza, again, not nearly to the extent that's going on. But again, people have to realize this happens every few years, maybe every year. There's like a bombing campaign, you know, um, back in 2001. And from the article that I read, like Biden actually called up Netanyahu and said like, Hey, we're out of runway after like, I think a hundred people got killed like just three years ago. Mm. So what's the change? I don't know. An election. <laughs> yeah. But this is like, isn't this hurting his chances? This is deeply unpopular. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I totally get that. But I mean, I think they're so stupid. They don't, they don't realize that. Right. He thinks he's going to lose votes with, well, and all the money he's gotten 
for how long from APAC and everything. I don't know. Yeah, this is that sort of democratic plan on the economy is to try to convince people that the, what they're experiencing is not real and what they're seeing in Gaza is not real. Like they're just peddling exactly in like to the right wing playbook that they're lying to you, that it's all fake. That's their platform. Yeah. I mean, it's cognitive dissonance. I mean, and if you want like a real example of cognitive dissonance, like within these narratives. So, you know, there's a push between some groups in coordination here in Pittsburgh to get Allegheny County Council to support a ceasefire resolution, right? Or a motion at least to support, to signal the county you know, stands for a ceasefire, right? Again, that's not like they have any political power to enact some kind of change mm-hmm. in terms of weapons distribution. But again, it's another pressure point as states across or cities and counties across the country um, are signaling that even in like these democratic areas that like we stand against this, right? So it's a pressure point. And it's something that people can get involved with at the local level, right? So mm-hmm. this motion didn't ultimately get brought up the other night at the county council meeting, but a bunch of people went down to, you know, show support, give public comment, right? And, you know, we hear these numbers get thrown around about how the vast majority of the country um, supports a ceasefire, right? Like, I think it's up to 80% of Democrats, even 60% of Republicans. So it ends up being like 70% of the population. Again, I'm speaking very roughly here. And like, in terms of who spoke for and against the ceasefire, that distribution was basically matched in terms of the number of speakers. You know, if we had 80 speakers, there was probably 55 to 60 of them that were speaking in favor of a ceasefire. Not everybody fully, you know, understood the politics behind or the history here. But again, it was a broad spread. It was a, it was a good cross section, right? Mm-hmm. The Zion, and of course, there was like 10 to 15 Zionists. And like, while the People speaking for the ceasefire, again, were this broad cross-section, you know, there was black people there, there was Jewish people there, there was obviously Palestinians there, there was white dudes like me, white women, you know what I mean? Again, it was like, it was the multiracial, multi-generational coalition, right? And of course, the Zionists get up there and speak, and they're all, you could tell the first one gets up there, and you know, she's like this middle-aged, like suburban woman. She's got her hair all done, wearing her pantsuit, right? And I'm like, all right, I see her to get up to speak. And I'm like, I didn't know what she was going to say. I was like, all right, I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. I don't know where she's coming from. Maybe she's on our side. I have no idea who this person is. I'm with Stand With Us, you know, and like <laughs> that that basically Zionist Hezbara, you know, propaganda mm-hmm. outlet. So she goes, and like their arguments were just like so grading like i mean i I know that sounds like kind of trite and obvious that like we wouldn't agree with their arguments but like they all got up and they all had like the same line and again there's only like 10 to 15 of them as compared to like 50 or 60 people for a ceasefire but like their line of argument was is that like a ceasefire is not a path to peace and it's just like if you're going up there and saying this in front of a bunch of people like do you realize how insane that sounds like so (laughs) what is the path to peace like again that's the logical next question like the path to peace then is like eradication of Gaza if it's not a ceasefire given what's going on right now. And it just sounds so crazy. And then the other thing is, is that they said, well, this isn't like a, this isn't the purview basically of the county council, right? But back in October, I think on October 24th, Allegheny County Council put forward basically a resolution or a motion to essentially stand with Israel, right? Mm-hmm. So it's only, it's only in their purview when 
it's in favor of their interests, you know, and again, it's obvious there's, there's only so much use in calling out this hypocrisy, but like hearing this in like a real life setting, like on the ground was just extremely jarring to me. Have you seen any, I don't know if you guys get these pop up on your feed as well, but like they're like new shows like we have here, but they're Israeli news shows. And these guys, like I, one popped up on mine and it was these guys talking and they were like, someone asked them, like you said, path to peace, like what are the next steps? And he's like voluntary migration of Palestinians. And they were like, well, how, this is where they live. How are you going to encourage that? He's like, by the destruction of their homes. And I was just like, fuck me. I just, <laughs> that's their plan. So. And it's no different than all the things that we've covered, you know, like, mm-hmm. and this is Ben Gurion said similar shit. Yeah. But to see it on like a, well, I mean, it's not unexpected, but just like, it's like, wow. No, it's, I, it's I jarring. Even, yeah. I don't even think with all the disgusting shit that happens in this country, I don't think people have the, the goal to come out and say like the worst shit they can on TV here. You know, they all try and cover it up with nice words and bullshit. Yeah. I think that's the European influence of Israeli politics because it's just dipping into German politics. They're, they're also pretty willing to say some pretty awful things as part of their regular party platforms. That was part of the issue with CPAC trying to move into European politics because they had CPAC Hungary that was supposed to be this like satellite organization that was supposed to attract the right wing organizations across Europe. You'd get something like a state senator from Arizona going there and talking about the need to secure liberties and freedom. You know, there'd be polite claps. Then the next guy would go on and talking about eradicating the radical Turkish from his neighborhood. Yeah. And you would like pan over to that state senator and she'd be like looking nervous, like, oh, you can't say that stuff in America. Yeah, I yeah think that, there's no shame in right wing politics in Israel. I think that Carrie Lake went to that hungry CPAC and she, you know, they yeah. come back and they come back and they're like, such a beautiful, safe country. Everything's so safe there. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. It just, just again, shows what they really want. They just want some fascist in charge just to... <laughs> Lock everyone up. Yeah. The uh, cultural exchange is coming coming stateside. We'll, we'll soon just have that on TV as well. I mean, Trump already tries it, but... Well, CPAC's going on here right now, isn't it? Is it? Cause, yeah, I think because, like, Truss came and spoke. It's like, it's like the, the least successful British prime minister ever. And she said, that, like, here. She, said the, <laughs> she said the right needed a bazooka to enforce their beliefs. I was like, fuck, okay. They <laughs> They're even getting emboldened here as well. So I'm like, you, yeah, you were prime minister for six weeks. You were at an abject failure. You lost to a cabbage or whatever that room. The head of lettuce? Yeah, lettuce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. Yeah, I don't know how long you were prime minister over there, but she's in the history books, guys. Yep, that's fair. She's one of like four prime ministers that oversaw the transition of the monarchy. Yeah, I guess that, yeah. So, it'll be a footnote forever. Yeah. It's worth noting that that Stand Up, the Jewish hate organization that you mentioned, is also the one that had at least one Super Bowl ad. So, this is not a small-time local Allegheny County organization, as I'm sure compared to the people that were in support of Ceasefire was much more organic and grassroots. Absolutely. I don't, yeah. I don't know, PSL, did they, did I miss it? Did they run a Super Bowl ad as well for their <laughs> yeah. candidate? 
Well, you know, we always get accused of like being funded by billionaires, but you know, curiously, we don't have any the capacity to do that. So, <laughs> maybe we're maybe we're just saving up. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's so stupid, dude. That uh, that Kennedy ad during the Super Bowl was pretty good. The one he had to apologize for. <laughs> oh, did he apologize for that? <laughs> he had to apologize to his family because his family were like, "You're a maniac." And the, like, my mother that you put on that ad would fucking hate you. <laughs> so he had to apologize <laughs> to his family. I feel like he's, that's sort of like the, the pot calling the kettle black there. I don't, yeah. I don't know that the Kennedy family can be throwing around accusations of abusing family power and privilege. Hey, listen, we're polished maniacs, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you might be crazy, but we're not anti-vax, you nutcase. That's <laughs> yeah. basically their position. We're perfectly fine with like bombing the rest of the world and like raping the fucking working class for our own benefit. But take your vaccine. We attack the American healthcare system, just not the specifics of it, just the concept of healthcare for human beings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the civilized way to understand medicine. It's just for the rich. Mm-hmm. Since we're talking about domestic politics a little bit, did you, have you seen like the last two things that Trump did recently. Like, we well, you know how Trump released those shoes? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there was a fucking, there was a take on Fox News that was like, he's doing this to appeal to the black community because they like sneakers. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Talking about Those, blatant, those blatant. people like sneakers. Like, oh yeah. Jesus Christ. And then I think last <laughs> night, I guess he's in South Carolina now because the primary is this week. Mm-hmm. And last night he was like, um, he was saying that his his legal persecution is akin to black people. So they should vote for him because Biden's racist because he's persecuting Trump. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, Biden's racist. I'm sure. <laughs> I think his history shows that, but uh, I don't know that you want to be saying stuff like that, Mr. Trump. I think you're just going to piss people off, but certain people. You ain't black. If you don't vote for me, like it's like the same shit. <laughs> Biden, Biden, it? Yeah. yeah. Well, wasn't that Trump that's put out a, like a full page ad trying to get the, was that the Central Park Nine? Five. Central Park Five uh, yeah, he executed. Put out a full, yep, he put out a full page ad saying they should be killed. Yeah, and I, I believe one of them now is a borough representative. Yeah, I think so. I wonder if he's come out in support of Trump as the black candidate. <laughs> I'm sure he's had time to heal from that. Yeah. <laughs> How long were yeah. they in prison for? Uh, one day is too long since they were well, all obviously. Yeah, but I mean, they were. <laughs> I mean, they were there for. I mean. At least 10 years, weren't they? More than that, I think. I don't know. I think it was a long time. I don't know. It says uh, between five and 13 years. I guess some of them got out earlier than others. But yeah, they lost uh, upwards of 13 years of their life to a false accusation. But it was Jesus Christ. completely on racism. And Donald Trump is now asking for their votes by making sneakers. I don't... It all doesn't make any sense. Sounds like, like a, pit, a pitch meeting for a, a bad TV show in the late 90s. This isn't how, I don't know. This is just how things always were. It's just more blatant, blatant now that everything's on Twitter or Instagram. So we actually have to hear what politicians are saying in their private life. Probably. I can't imagine it was any better. Like we just said, Donald Trump released that ad in the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, the, I think a part of it is we just see more. But I think, I don't know. I guess it's just like probably before when some politicians given some speech and you know during a primary you just wouldn't it wouldn't be on tv and you wouldn't know unless you were there you wouldn't hear it right but now it's just everybody reports on it 
when Joe Biden ran for president the first time and pretended his life was that British activist life. <laughs> Not the first time he had to drop out of the presidency. Is that what happened? <laughs> yeah. Now he's he, pretending that his father lived in a kibbutz, right? Or, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one of the like the most insane defenses I've heard talking about Joe Biden not losing his mind is like, oh, he's been saying this stuff all the time. He's always sort of <laughs> adopted other people's stories and adopted other people's lives. It's like, oh, so he was terrible from the beginning. That's your argument. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he was always incompetent. Mm. Not that's selling the image you want to sell right now. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, like the defense is just, I don't know. I don't know. We're really doing some groundbreaking stuff here, right? Like Biden's senile <laughs> and Trump's a fucking racist, you know? Like, I, I don't know. <laughs> Man, that's what sells. Mm-hmm. The hits. Yeah. This is what you come in for. That's right. Yeah. Damn, that's crazy. That's crazy, bro. <laughs> that's crazy, bro. <laughs> Biden said that? Holy shit. Yeah. We got to do, do something about that. Yeah, right, bro? That's why I like that Trump. He's kind of like an outsider. Like, he's crazy. Don't get me wrong. He says some shit that's bad, but I don't know. He just feels different, doesn't he? Have you heard of this guy, RFK? He's like <laughs> the grandson or something of Roosevelt. I don't know. It's pretty important. <laughs> yeah. And you know, like, I talked to that Brett Weinstein guy, and RFK is really like, he's vibing with me, you know, about, especially around this COVID shit. Everybody just went so nuts. It's like, <laughs> You know, I've been here normal the whole time and just things seem to be just shifting away. Like, <laughs> I still want all this progressive stuff, but like, it's just getting too crazy. Woke mind virus is insane. <laughs> well, I'm glad we've uh, figured out our niche. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Where do we want to go? I mean, I want to, in, I'm interested, Levi, in other concerns you may have about going to Germany, like politically right now. I mean... Because the other thing looming in the background of all this shit is like the, it's not even really looming in the background, but like this Ukraine war keeps driving on um, the European economy. I don't think is in recovery mode quite yet. And now that Germany's increasing their defense spending, I mean, again, like there's been small escalations. I think our eyes have like rightfully been on Palestine, but I don't know. I haven't seen anything that would indicate like that at least that the U.S. is going to come to the table on the Ukraine-Russia thing right now. Germany is now the second biggest supplier of military aid to Ukraine. Yeah, I saw that number and it just like made me curious on what is actually Germany's you know, contribution. Because one of those, those numbers can be really misleading because you know, I think it's Italy has the second highest number of aircraft carriers. And I think they have two, whereas the United States has like 40. Mm-hmm. And just looking up like expenditures on Ukraine, the United States gives in just financial aid to Ukraine almost twice as much as Germany gives as part of their entire package. So it's true, Germany gives the second most amount, but they're not actually giving. They're not supporting this war. If they pulled out, the United States could still carry it. If the United mm, States yeah. pulled out, Germany has to pull out because it's just it's over. Nobody would be supporting them. Yeah. But it, it is an interesting signal. It's like, as they say, it's a token signifier, isn't it? That's all it really right. is at that level. Because they're significantly more than any other individual European nation as well. So they're trying yeah. to sort of throw their weight around 
I think in anticipation of Trump coming back in and taking over the direction of NATO, say that they're going to be the country that dictates NATO if the United States is going to step out. And what does yeah. that look like? But again, like, do we, I guess to get to more sub, something more substantive about Trump, like, do we expect the direction of NATO to change just because Trump comes to presidency? I mean, like, there was a lot of talk last time, but like, you know, people want to say, oh, he's like the anti, you know, anti-Ukraine war, like pro-Russia guy. I mean, he funded, he gave tons of money to Ukraine before the outbreak of all this shit. Like Trump had a role like this, again, going back to the whole point that we've made over and over again, like this didn't spring out of nowhere. It's been going on before Trump. It went on during Trump and like just kind of boiled over during the Biden presidency. But like, again, like a flip just didn't switch. Mm -hmm. Pompeo was supremely anti-Russia, pro-Ukraine. So I don't know. Like, I, yeah, I guess maybe he'll put, he'll exert like a little bit more pressure to, for people to pay their share because like he puts out this kind of like zero sum kind of transactional persona that like people have to like, you know, especially regards to like trade deficits very simply. Right. And then like paying their fair share into NATO. But again, like Trump doesn't want NATO to be gone. He doesn't want, and he can't, he can't do like, he wouldn't, he can't do that anyway, just as like the single president. No, it, I think thinking about it in terms of signaling power in positions is a better way to understand the NATO mm -hmm. politics because the way he signals his threats against the European nations is his way of saying that like the United States is still in charge. We're going to yeah. threaten to pull out of this. And then it opens space for the right wing factions within places like Germany to say, well, we're going to step up and fill this role because we're in charge. And it yeah. doesn't fundamentally change any of the structures or even the funding when you actually look at how it continues to function, but it provides a really good rhetorical way for right-wing countries to hit on people's innate fear of other, mm -hmm. that somehow these hordes of masses are going to come in and invade Western Europe if NATO is not maintained. I mean, the talking point keeps coming up that if you look at these claims that Russia invaded Ukraine in order to destroy NATO, in a lot of ways, that's, that hasn't happened. Whether or not that was the point of the war, the reality is NATO has been strengthened in Europe. Its funding has increased. Its membership has increased. Its rhetorical power has increased. People now know what, or people have a better idea of what NATO is for right now than they did 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. There's actual talks of it being dismantled uh, post-Soviet Union. Now that those talks, there's not even people entertaining that rhetorically, of dismantling NATO. I guess I wonder if, like, when we're talking about talks, are we talking about at the institutional level? Like, I wonder... I'd be interested, like, once you get a sense over there, like, what people on the ground are saying, at least what you can get anecdotally, you know? Because there's been really real economic pressures. Now, like to your point about the right wing, the right wing can kind of take those economic pressures and kind of mystify and scapegoat, right? To say, okay, mm -hmm. yeah, like we need to fund NATO to prevent this shit, which is actually the real problem, which is what the right wingers are going to do. But like, I wonder where, you know, the I don't want to say left populist, but yeah, I guess, I guess that's a good word for it. Like where that kind of like where those people's headspace are at. And I guess we've talked about it too before. And like Steve, with the examples you've brought up, like of like some of your 
family in like Britain and I know Britain's not part of Europe anymore, but like how much is the, like the, uh, the refugee problem going to prevent refugee crisis, quote unquote, right? Is that going to actually prevent the left from consolidating any kind of real fight and fighting against like NATO on a principled basis? I, I, I don't know. I mean, as we mentioned at the top, there's a lot more, there's a lot of really easy cudgels against the left. Like you can, you're literally being thrown in jail for supporting Palestine. Mm -hmm. And as we've stated on other episodes, that's a pretty good way to tell a person's larger political beliefs is where did they stand even before October 7th on the question of Israel. So it just seems like it's a really easy stake in the heart of a populist or a popular left movement that doesn't have these right wing views or populist or however you want to label them views on immigration and the other, because it's, I'm not arguing that those reactionary left wing positions are legitimately grassroots popular, but those are the ones that can be present in the public and like present themselves without fear of being arrested. Mm -hmm. Is this weird pro Israel left or pro Ukraine, pro Israel schizophrenia? Yeah. yeah. It's wild. It's also just like reinforced an analysis of like, like how Germany behaves, how Europe is behaving again at like the state and institutional level, especially like with the EU it just reinforced. I think how we need to view imperialism like right now, like Western imperialism is dominated by the U S and we've got like concrete evidence in terms of like states sacrificing even what would be in their own interest just to maintain this system and like kowtow to the U S line. And I'm not saying that the European ruling classes don't benefit, but like they're so heavily tied to what the U S is dictating that like, I don't know how they break out of it, you know? And obviously like we've got a counter to it growing in the global South, but yeah, Western imperialism is U.S. imperialism. I just don't know how else to say it. I mean, that comes even to the British example to circle back. So Keir Starmer, his popularity is apparently taking a hit. Like, what was it? Um, I don't know when it was when those polls were done, but labor was some insane percentage supported, like larger yeah, like, than they'd I, been presented before. I think it was after Sunak. Shortly after Sunak took over, and uh, well, I mean, he got a lot of criticism because, you know, he had that five-point plan or something and nothing got done. And I mean, there was one point, I mean, it was almost like, I mean, it was like over 70% claimed support for Stormer. And, and, you know, I think part of that is, you know, he's way more like Tony Blair mm -hmm. than Corbyn, right? And And so I feel like it's okay for the more liberal people in England to support Starmer than it was for them to support Corbyn. Corbyn was supported by, you know, socialists, basically, and then got just got fucked by everybody. So I gotta and read I, that book that Asa Wynn Stanley, that weaponizing anti Semitism, because I think that is about that Corbyn scenario. Yeah. And Corbyn, from what I understand, is been one of the few voices in relatively mainstream British politics that has been staunch in his support of Palestine, mm -hmm. as much as he ever was. I, I don't know the details. But. No, he was, and he also, he got criticism for that, and I think he was also pretty sympathetic to, like, the, he made, it, at some point in his career, I think he made pro-IRA comments, or, or at least sympathetic oh. IRA comments, so, 
you know, again, he's a socialist, so he's, <laughs> you would expect him to support these these things. And yeah, that that was just held as like a cudgel against him by the British public and by the establishment in Britain. But to your point that you made earlier, Nick, the position that labor government is taking on Ukraine, Russia, and Israel-Palestine is the U.S. position in spite of yeah. the fact that it's it's hurting the Labor Party at the polls. Uh, I believe there's, I don't know that they call them by-elections, but there was an election or there's an election coming up in the U.K. that's meant to be some sort of bellwether of where the country's going to be going just in terms of participation and interest. And they're getting like, just record low interest in the concept of voting in this election. Mm. That people are just tired. They don't feel like there's a point. That yeah. their literal infrastructure is crumbling around them. And they have the option of, you know, a milk toast center leftist. Who's going to continue to bomb people, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the labor government rhetorically will talk about rebuilding Great Britain in the same way that conservatives talk about rhetorically rebuilding Great Britain, but neither of them are willing to make any solid plans that appear to have any future. Yep. And that just seems to be the, the larger spiral that, you know, we're dealing with that in the United States as well. They're dealing with that in Germany. They don't have plans. It's just all reacting to the latest crisis and getting dictation from some larger system that's still, you know, the United States is at the controls still. They're still funding all of it, in spite of what we might think. In the United States, military is still, even though it's, it's the world's largest and China's the second largest, but I think the United States is outspending China by three times. Uh, I think it's like eight times. It's 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 crazy, right? We're talking uh, whatever, hundreds whatever of is, billions. Like, yeah, whatever it is, it's like, and I, I we have to be real. Like a lot of places, like places like China, that's been you know the amount that they do on military. I mean, is solely I would say at this point from like a defensive posturing position because the U.S. has nine hundred military bases across the entire world, and they've I mean. They've got so they've got how I don't even know what the number is just in terms of how they've surrounded China using places like South Korea, Japan, um, the Philippines, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But they've essentially got them navally like fenced in. So I can't imagine that China wants to spend that much on military is given all the other development projects that they undertake is like their priority. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm not a big China defender, but just the reality is what is the military doing in the PRC? How many military bases do they have in Europe, South America, Australia? They don't. None. What you guys don't realize, this is, this is another one of these right-wing talking points right now on, on the, the crazy people, is China's buying up all the farmland in America around all of our military bases because they are slowly going to take over our military bases. <laughs> Stop they're, selling they're, it to them then. Like, I don't know what to say. Like, it's, it's just fucking hilarious. When you, like, like Maybe some, the state should take control of the fucking farmland, right? Like, <laughs> and let these private assholes sell it off. Like, it's not, our, it's not my fault that these people are so fucking greedy and stupid. Like, I don't give a fuck about, like, U.S. national interests or whatever. Like, I don't give a flying fuck about that but like that argument is so stupid these people are so ridiculous right and we've talked about this before but like even what is the purpose of the military in a culture like china is very different because the military actually serves um like constructive purposes in areas that are more remote like they're doing Mm -hmm. infrastructure building 
in the same way that, you know, maybe I would have a, a less negative feeling of the $500 billion or so that's going into the American military if they suddenly went into Flint and replaced the entire water system. Yeah. Like, that's just not what the military is structured to do in the United States. It's purely an offensive control mechanism. Right. Now, I'm, I'm sure there's a control mechanism to military spending in China as well. Of course. It's a military. It's a police. But it has other functions as well. Yeah. It's just the state just has more control in larger aspects of life. It's not a market-based system where they can bid on who gets to fuck up the water system in Flint again. Yeah. And, like... Again, like to your point, Levi, like I come from a place obviously of like critical support for China. China's not perfect. No state is perfect, you know, but like, and I know they do have motivations that are, it's a contradictory system, right? Because they do have these market elements, but we have to recognize, and again, we're talking about like these global systems at some level, right? That like, you can be a socialist country, but we're living in a totalizing world system of imperialism, which is dominated by the U S right. So like it almost reminds me of the conversation of like, Oh, as a socialist, like why do you have an iPhone? Right? Like people are going to participate in this world system. You know, it's contradictory Mm -hmm. in terms of, and it causes contradictions in terms of like what you say your system is and what you actually try to do, I think for your people. Cause I think a place like China, a place like Cuba, they're really doing what they can to try to live up to like, the standards set forth by the revolutions that birthed these societies, not perfectly all the time. Right. But again, a lot of these problems, and it's not even an excuse. It's just like a fundamental fact is that this world system that everybody has to partake in is the source of conflicting ideas and conflicting actions, because like, you're just not going to completely cut yourself off like voluntarily, like North Korea doesn't want to be cut off. Cuba does not want to be cut off. That is, those are conditions imposed upon them, right? So I don't know. It, it gets tough to speculate about like, well, what would China do? Like, I don't know. I just want the system that boxes them in militarily gone. Like, I, I, I can't tell you what's going to happen once that's gone, but I know my government is responsible for that. And I think that's horrible. Like, I, I'm not going to get into this hypothetical game. It's like, oh, if we take it away, then China's going to do this. I have no evidence for that. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can work on getting the military bases out of Germany. (laughs) Because that's like a big, that's a big part of this too, of like why Germany behaves the way it does. Europe is militarily occupied. Yeah. It's fatal to be the U.S.'s friend. It can be convenient sometimes too. Yeah. I mean, until recently they had a social safety net that was impenetrable. We even talked about that, I believe, with Brett, that Mm -hmm. what we don't want is a safety net that's built on top of military occupation. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's nice that the, that uh, the German economy, I guess up until recently, it's been a paltry, I think it's 0.8% of their GDP on military. While the United States spent uh, by records 3.5, but it's arguably much larger because of how secretive that budget actually is. Right. Um, yeah. It's, it was a deal that was made in the post-World War II world under a completely different circumstance that, I mean, it wasn't something they agreed on, right? They were occupied in a literal sense, and then it was developed into a system. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing that system start to collapse. And I was reading an article about this recently that had this position that the left is overemphasizing the collapse of the United States, but it was taking a leftist position saying that 
by constantly talking about the imminent collapse, we want, run the risk of behaving like the socialists during World War One or pre-World War One that just believed that the system was going to eat itself. Yeah. That in reality, a system that's perpetuating the world's largest military on an ungodly, unimaginable amount of money is not going to just collapse in the dark silently. No, it's it going to be a long, protracted process. And it's one that needs to constantly be pushed along the way, not one yeah. that's going to go on its own. Well, and then that gets, because that just gets into like, I think, millenarianism. Like, I'm reading these books by Lacerdo, right? And he uses that term to describe that era a lot. And, you know, especially with respect to the Soviet Union, just like in terms of the conflicts between what I would argue like the Stalinist governments kind of were forced to do at some level just by the concrete reality of the situation versus the expectations of like the classless, stateless, moneyless society and how quickly that would um, actually come to, you know, come to come into being. But like, again, imperialism, the world system took on a new character after World War II, right? Which mm -hmm. led to, and again, like not even before that, like the imperialist intervention into the Soviet Union led to, you know, led to a different set of conditions that had to be grappled with and dealt with and kind of disabused people of some of these millenarian expectations of like, oh yeah, like the system deterministically coming to an end, right? And the European, the German working class rising up and winning. And that didn't happen, you know? So to your point, it's a long-winded way of saying is like, yeah, we can't just wait for it to happen. It's not going to happen tomorrow, you know? Like just because like, I mean, even like look at the rise of bricks, like the rise of bricks is contradictory, and it's no saving grace for the world. It's like, I think it's a net, I think it's a net positive, like when you sum it all up, but it's just treated as like a historical fact. We don't know if it's going to be good or not, you know, um, but we need to keep pushing. We need to keep pushing. Like sometimes history needs a push. And that's the reality of what history is in terms of what our narrative will be. We're looking back at this moment in 50 years, a lot of those histories might start with an investigation <laughs> of this organization that came to represent the world that we couldn't name right now. Like we don't know where the resistance is going to you know, completely take hold. Nobody was talking about Hamas in 1987, but four years after it was created. But now if you're writing a history about the late 80s and you don't talk about Hamas, that would be insane. Right. And that's one of the things that's really hard when thinking historically is you come to think that like you understand the past, but the present is constantly restructuring how we have to understand the past, which is the hopeful notion of history too, is that we always think that we're behind the eight ball and that things are not going the right direction, but we could be right in the thick of where things start to change and not even realize it until 10 years from now. Yeah. And I think we need to fight like that's the case, right? Right, yeah, because I mean, the interesting thing on the again with listening to these right wing guys, you know, they also talk about the decline of the American Empire as well, and they, you know, especially like if you list like that, Tim Pool talks about like an imminent civil war. He's always talking about it on like the culture war front, but like again, you know, election fraud and all this shit they always talk about. But they're almost excited about it because they think like, what's going to happen get is bunker. <laughs> well, no, Trump's going to come in and like basically just revert to, you know, a strongman leader that will then guide this country into being like a more Christian based, 
which I mean, that, that's something that always baffles me how they, these, you know, Trump's going to be this Christian, this bastion of Christianity and lead this country. But anyway, <laughs> you know, a more religious focused society, because they always go back to like, that's really what this country is founded on the basis of Christ, you know, the fundamentals of Christianity, but that we're going to come out at Trump's going to win or just take power. And we're going to have, you know, go back to, you know, a more Christian based society where, you know, LGBTQ plus people are, are oppressed more so than they already are. And, you know, we, and it's just like, so they're almost excited by it. Whereas, you know, yeah, I don't know. It's just a, a different take on, on, you know, having the same idea, but just being, having a totally wrong opinion about what, where we need to go. That's like, they're, they're always making these ahistorical historical arguments about the future. Yeah. It's like I was saying that, you know, we, we think about the, the sort of points in history and their relative importance. I know, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't remember it, and it was so bad that it's worth not remembering correctly, but Shapiro has a, some argument about, like, the three great cities in world history. Have you heard this? I haven't heard that one. And I guess he says it's uh, Athens, Jerusalem, and D.C., <laughs> Those are the, the three birthplaces of the greatest ideas. But I, he obviously doesn't say DC, or maybe does, but he's, he's claiming some sort of American heritage to creating the greatest ideas. Um, and of course, Jerusalem, because he wants to always emphasize the unity of Judaism and Christianity and conveniently leave out Islam and Athens, because that was the birthplace of democracy, even though forms of democracy all over the world way before that right it's democracy for the rich and, and the slave society yeah. yeah that that's i don't know why you're focusing on that that's not around anymore don't well, worry about why. it we know why <laughs> also a lot gayer than people like to make it out to be yeah it's it's insane how revved up they are in what little i know about the right wing for this impending Christian revival because they've been saying the same stuff way longer than even leftists have been saying things like that, that Jesus is right around the corner and will be bringing hellfire back to the earth. And that never seems to happen either, at least as far as I remember. And like, I wanted to, I know we talked about maybe talking about doing an episode on this. We should still do it. Maybe you can just find an article. I'm sure somebody's done good work than rather than me trying to do a write up, but like, how that ties into like the Zionist project as well, right? Because mm. a lot of these people are Zionists, but they want it because they think that, you know, once the Jews basically solidify their hold on Israel, then Jesus is going to come back and kill yeah. them all anyway, right? Only those that don't accept him. Right. <laughs> but the Jews need to be there because they were there when he left. So he needs to feel comfortable so he can do his thing quickly. Right. But it's like apocalyptic, right? It's like apocalyptic, mm. nihilistic, and so fucking bleak. Like that, you know, extreme vision, and even what the right wing envisions now. And it's like, we're trying to fight for something beautiful and good, you know? And it's still really fucking hard. But like the visions for what comes out of that collapse, and I know I'm stating the obvious here, but it's just like so starkly different. Like we want humanity to thrive. We don't want any more bombs to fall on people and shit. And like, <laughs> I know that sounds a little bit like, 
millenarian and utopian, but like ultimately that's what we're fighting for. You know, they, they, these guys want a race war and to throw LGBTQ people into camps, if not execute them. Like yeah. what the fuck? It's just funny. Cause then if you actually look at these individuals, they're not the kind of people that you actually imagine executing anything like that. They're pretty comfortable in their lives. Definitely. They're the, they're going to be the first ones that are going to try to hide in their bunkers and never come out. This gets to like another thing. And maybe we can look to start wrap up start to wrap up soon but like that idea like that vision is very individualistic you know and i'm interested i guess levi like if you can get linked up into at least some like left spaces out there like how much different people's general attitudes is from like the left on the ground here because man we have a lot of like anti-organization anarchist horizontalist kind of sentiment which is I mean, again, from my perspective, I'm a communist, extremely detrimental towards like building like class power, you know, um, because it is this emphasis on individuality. And I'm not saying that these anarchists are the same as these right wing lunatics, but there is this individualist strain in America mm-hmm. that is found on, you know, all across the political spectrum, I would think. And I don't I'm just interested, I guess, to see what you, what kind of anecdotes you can glean once you actually get on the ground and spend some time um, in Germany and if you can get a taste for that, because it's a difficult thing that we have to navigate here in the U S yeah, it sounds like it's just different kinds of demons that come to bear because we've, we've talked about the sort of detriments of the, the extreme individualism that's imagined in the United States, but also sort of talked about the benefits that come with that on some level. Even in the throes of the pro-Israel reaction, I think I tried to be very optimistic and say, like, this isn't going to last. People are really going to start looking at the individual news and not trust what the state is saying very quickly Mm -hmm. because the United States has this hardline streak of just not trusting authority, which I think draws from that individualist notion and leads to anarchist organizations on the left rather than more state-based organizations on the American left. But I would say I'm expecting to see more sympathy towards the state on the left in Europe, Mm -hmm. but also probably just a greater trust. You know, what would be the opposite concern there? A, A greater trust in the actions of the state to fix things as they exist now, perhaps, or a greater allegiance to authority, that is probably not beneficial. You mean like when you say that though, I just want to clarify, you mean like more of like a social democratic bent and that like, there's still like trust in the institutions, but that they can change it because they have this idea that there is at least the framework for some kind of social safety net already. And like, you know, benefits that Europe, Europe has essentially been granted under this imperialist system. I think that's part of it. I think it's even more theoretical than that, but, like there's going to be a greater emphasis on hierarchy that the past has more answers rather than raises more questions in the way that it does in the United States. In my Mm. experience with left circles, that there's much more emphasis on creative thinking in the American left, whether it's because it's never worked here, even on the most basic level, or it's this individualist streak. I'm not really sure which one's driving it. But what I understand in the European left is there's way more fealty towards older thinkers and lines of thought 
rather than creating or experimenting with new concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just purely what I've understood. And that's also with the huge caveat that I'm only uh, accessing English sources to those questions. So they might even be appealing to Americans to try to get them to read more and to understand the history more. So that might just be coming through in the way that it's represented. I don't know. I'm fascinated to see how, what the differences really will be though. Cause it, yeah. every organizing that I've been in has had a lot of anarchists and I've heard that's not the case in a lot of European nations outside of, I guess, Spain has a big anarchist streak to it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, again, like I'm just interested to hear what you, you can dig up on that front and have some kind of like, maybe we could get somebody on eventually to have some kind of like comparative conversation. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, Frankfurt's the heart of the beast, though. That's the that's where their stock market is. I don't know what the left even looks like in that particular area. Yeah, How that represents the rest of Europe or even the rest of Germany. Right. Well, boys, what do you think? I'll have a safe trip, Levi. <laughs> good good <laughs> yeah. luck settling in there, and might be a little crazy for a while for us, but we'll see. Right. I mean, talk about anarchy. We're going to be in a city that has a thriving decriminalized red light district where apparently anything goes. Oh yeah. Food's great there though. <laughs> That's what I've heard. <laughs> the huge population of uh, Turkish and Syrians means that there's dead sober night food workers make the best food on the planet. So a drunk guy. <laughs> Can't wait to be one of those drunk guys when I come visit. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, but we're going to miss you, buddy. Um, We wish you safe travels. But like, you know, as you guys can probably tell for the listeners, like we are not envisioning the podcast coming to an end here. We're just, you know, going to maybe do a little bit different style or we'll have new insights. Uh, I guess to Steve's point, the next week's probably will be a little bit hectic. We're going to do our best to try to keep up a schedule, but we're just going to do what we can. Uh, If we miss a week, we're going to have to deal with it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) do we want to tease our upcoming collaboration or just leave it there oh yeah no go ahead i mean you've been taking the the reins on this one but we have an upcoming collaboration with closeted history we'll throw a link to that in the, the show notes here but uh destiny is working with us to work through some of the larger questions on making the connections between queer history and support for Palestine and larger anti-imperialist movement. Yeah. No, we had a really fun conversation with destiny. I'll throw the link to her YouTube channel. Um, check them out. She does a really nice job, um, production and content wise. So we're excited to work with her more on the future and for the episode that probably will come out next week. So keep an eye out for that. But, um, As always, you know, thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Levi again, safe travels, and uh, we'll talk to you all soon, all right? Go out and get organized. Levi's going to have to change his thing to, like, choose rather than... (laughs) (laughs) Choose. (laughs) Adios, paisanos, for now, though. Thanks. See you guys.